If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Introductions are often interesting. Um, We often use titles as we introduce one individual to another to convey biographical, educational experience, work experience, data about the person that we're introducing. The same titles that we use conversationally to introduce people, often we use in correspondence. And I'm afraid that it's turned out to be almost entirely an email format nowadays, but it used to get letters. Um, that was, that's kind of fun. Um, and today I, I want to introduce you afresh to someone that I think you'll already know but who's had so many titles throughout his lifetime, had so many titles throughout his lifetime, that, that we, we really forget all of them. Um, if you imagine in your mind maybe receiving a letter from this individual or that a letter was received in a time gone by from this individual, and at one point the letter would have come from a representative, and he wrote in this letter, there is a destiny which has the control of our actions, not to be resisted by the strongest efforts of human nature. A decade or so later, he would write under the title of Colonel, and he would say in that letter, labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire that we call conscience. In 1774, he would write as a delegate to the House of Virginia, the ways of providence being inscrutable, and the justice of it not being scanned by the shallow eye of humanity, nor to be counteracted by the utmost efforts of human power or wisdom, resignation, and as far as the strength of our reason and religion can carry us, a cheerful acquiescence to the divine will is what we are to aim. Then in 1775, he would write under the title General, While we are contending for our own liberty, we should be very cautious not to violate the rights of conscience in others, ever considering that God alone is the judge of the hearts of men, and to Him only is this case, uh, in this case are they answerable. Later, in 1794, he would write, Truth will ultimately prevail where there is pains to bring it to light. And of course, in this letter in 1794, the man that we remember, we remember not as representative or colonel or delegate or general, but as president, George Washington. It's interesting that as we remember the man who coined the phrase, Mr. President, all of his other titles are wrapped into that one title, Mr. President, because there's an ascending order to titles. Well, the same, in some sense, is true of the titles that we find in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the difference in the titles of Christ and the titles of someone like George Washington are exponential. Um, Because, of course, the titles of George Washington, that of Colonel and Delegate and General, Representative, President, those titles commend his effort and his human action which alone and by themselves would bring George Washington nothing but ruin. But the names of Christ convey that He is the second member of the Trinity who is due our worship every day of our lives. We know Jesus this far in John's Gospel as the light of the world. And throughout His Gospel, As the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior, the Light of the world, Lord, our great High Priest, our Conqueror, and our King. But today we come to a title that I hope in leaving this place is seared into our memory and does not leave us unchanged. So with that in mind, would you stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. Starting... In verse 16, 
John writes here under the inspiration of the one who holds all things together. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence today, and we're so thankful to be able to gather here in your name. We're so thankful for the, the, the table that we've been able to gather around today to be reminded of your death, burial, and resurrection, and your power over all things. We're so thankful to come here today and to be reminded that nothing that we face, no darkness, no disappointment, can overcome the glorious works of redemption that you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have to remember that Jesus has been talking to this woman about her sin, about her need for living water, and she does what most of, most of us would do. She tries to dodge the interaction. I mean, if you just out and about in society sat down and there came someone who told you everything that was wrong and was sinful about your life, I don't think you would say, well, tell me more. Now, you would do what she does. You try to change the stinking subject. I mean, we've all been in those family conversations. We're not too far beyond uh, the holidays for a, 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 a remembrance back. To, you know, somebody in the family brings up that issue that is the white elephant in the room. And generally speaking, a wife or a mother or somebody's going to knee you under the table to tell you, shut up, move on. That's kind of what's going on here. At first, she tries to interject a theological issue. And friends, those of us in, in, in this room who really do strive after a theological erudition, one thing I would warn you continually is that being correct in theology and constantly talking about theology can be something of a shield to guard you from having to deal with the, the issues of your heart. Um, theology is often used as a buffer when we really need to get to the heart issues. But our Lord doesn't, doesn't stop. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't demur when she just deals with this theological issue. He deals with the issue and then presses further in. But lastly, she appeals to the coming of the Messiah. This, this, this prophet, as she's called Jesus to this point, is telling her about her, her sin and her need for living water. And, and the final blow that she tries to strike is yet well, when the Savior comes. He'll tell us. And of course, Jesus speaks to her and says, I who speak to you am He. Apparently, this finally pierced the conscience of this woman. And so in verses 28 and 29, we find, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. I, I think that the, 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 the phrase there, can this be the Christ, if we're reading it, you know, in a way to legalistically just get through our Bible reading throughout the year, we'll read that as though she's just mumbling that. But I think that she's heralding a truth into that community. This is the Christ. I think that she's come to that realization. And, and I, I want to I talk to you about, just for a moment, about what we find here in verse 26. Because I don't want to undermine your confidence in your English translation, but can I, I tell you this? 
I believe that so often in the English language, the translation from either the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, the English language is something leaves us with something less. Now we can always trust our translation, but there is a richness, a fullness to the original languages. It's why it's important to study those and, and, and to reach after those meanings there. And that doesn't mean that everybody in the, the church has to know uh, Greek and Hebrew to its fullest. There are people uh, that I have in my own life that know the languages in a way that just boggles my mind. But what Jesus here is saying is more than what you see in the English translation. What he's uh, here is saying is, is again, I am the Messiah. It's not less than that, but it's, it's more than that. Uh, what we hear in the English in verse 26, I who speak to you am He. If we're not careful, we'll hear that as Jesus making a claim. Kind of suggesting to this woman. I promise you that's not what is happening here. And I, I think we would do well to go back. Turn in your Bible if you have it open. And I would encourage you to have a Bible open this morning. Uh, turn back to Exodus chapter 3. I'll give you just a minute to get there. Exodus chapter 3. Starting in, verse, starting in verse 1. This is Moses at the burning bush. Now we have to remember that this would have been part of the, the translation that the Bible that the Samaritan woman would have received and believed as true. And, and the Word of God is not in that time as it is today. Uh, in that time, it was so culturally... Uh, alive. It was so much a part of the community that even if she was not a, a day in and day out laborer over the words, she would have heard these words pronounced multiple times. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of the fire in the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, Do not come near. Take off your, the sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now we continue after a conversation and God's going to send Moses back to his people. Moses has a concern. How am I going to make this introduction of who's sending me, Lord? And look in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Now, now we come back to this nameless woman in John chapter 4, this Samaritan woman. And she has already proclaimed Jesus to be a prophet of sorts. She has tried to deal with him on the basis of theological obfuscation and she has appealed to the one who will come and who will reveal all things. So Jesus doesn't here come and make a suggestion, a claim, I am the Messiah in a weak and tepid fashion. He's not making a, a, a mere suggestion. He is making the same bold declaration that comes there in Exodus chapter 3. He declares, I am. 
She immediately does what Moses does, and she returns to the people to tell them, the I Am has sent me to you. The glory of the Gospel is that, beloved, He knows our frame. He knows who we are. He knows every ounce of the sin that we will ever commit throughout our entire life. And yet we find in the Psalms, in Psalm 103, as the Father shows compassion to His children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame and He remembers that we are but dust. The glory of this narrative is found in the identity and I would, of Christ. And I would argue that verse 26 is the pentacle, is the point of the entire narrative. Now there are other things that flow from it. But this is not a moralistic teaching. This is a passage that is heralding who Christ is. In chapter 8, verse 24, we find this same declaration of the I am. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And this is what's interesting. All throughout the English translation, the translation biffs it and changes. It adds in a, a pronoun of, of he or something else to, to strengthen the readability of the English. But I think what we need to see here is Jesus throughout John's Gospel makes this same declaration. I am. Friends, if you are here today and you are trusting on Christ for salvation, you are the most blessed of all the earth. I guarantee you that. Because you've come to the realization that the same God who was there with Moses who sent Him to His people, the same God who set those people free is the same God that has spoken to you in the darkness of your heart and shown His light through the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that He is before all things. And in verse 58 and 59, we find Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up... Now, now listen, he's making this declaration to the Jewish people. That there is a clear understanding of what this means, of his identity. And so what they did is they welcomed him with open arms. They, they were thankful that finally all of the promises that they had found in the Scriptures were yes and amen in Jesus. And so they bowed at His feet and they worshipped Him. That's not what follows. As soon as He says before Abraham was, I am, you'll find these words. So they picked up stones to throw at Him. But Jesus Himself hid Himself and went out of the temple. Some might argue, and, and this is why I've told you before, that liberals hate the Gospel of John? Because liberals like to say, well, Jesus never claimed that He was God. It's not just that I disagree with liberals. It's one of two things. Either they're dishonest people or they're illiterate. And I mean that with all kindness. I think that's kind. Yeah, that's kind. <laughs> The reality is Jesus is making this declaration that He is God all throughout John's Gospel. It's not just an... They'll make the argument, well, there are some isolated cases that may be. Really? I mean, there are three that I've just read, but also in John chapter 6, we find Jesus walking on the water, and of course the disciples are shaken by this. And do you remember how He responds? But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. What is actually under the English translation there is, I am, do not be afraid. Now, Jesus said to them in, in uh, verse 28 of, of John chapter 8, So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In chapter 13, verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may know. And the English translation here renders it in the ESV, I am He. But the, the, the Greek here is the words, I am. 
the betrayal of Christ. In uh, John 18, we find these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out, of his, uh, out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the pre- chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The chief priests and the Pharisees went there with, with lanterns. Sorry. Um, uh, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came toward them and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Jesus said to them? I am. Now again, your English translations are going to render that I am he. But what he's speaking is what, what Moses heard, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Seven times in all, Jesus makes this expression. He claims to be co-equal with God the Father. And not only this, but there are also seven times a me, I am, is linked to a noun that shows us not only is He eternal, Not only does Jesus deal with us, and I'm afraid that far too often we fall into kind of a Gnostic Christianity where everything is about Beulah land and the mansion that's being built and all of that, you know, out there. But can I tell you something? The same Lord who rules over eternity is the same Lord who rules over this created earth. It all belongs to Him. And so not only does He take care of our spiritual needs, that's the problem with so much that is done in the name of Jesus today is well, well, pastors and chaplains and those who come in the name of Christ, they're there to help you with your spiritual needs. Friends, my Bible speaks to every ounce of my life and existence. The physical realities and the spiritual included and so not only does he make this declaration i am but he goes on to link this all throughout john's gospel that he is our ultimately ultimate good in a near human sense he says i am the bread of life i am the light of the world chapter 8 chapter 10 i am the gate Also, I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life in in chapter 14. And in chapter 15, I am the true vine. Those who abide in me will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this woman, we have to get this. Wrap this up in your brain. Uh, this, is, uh, this whole scene is kind of boring if you don't put it all together. But when you see what Jesus is speaking to this woman, I promise you there's a reason, Dallas, why Hollywood hasn't tried to recreate this. And it's this reason, because they can't. Some people say that a picture is worth a thousand words. I promise you that individual never read the Word of God. And so here we find this woman sitting on the side of the well doing what is, what is just normal, going about daily life, drawing up water. And there is this one who comes and he sits there beside her and he tells her everything about who she is and what's transpired in her life. Things that she probably had tried to obscure from other people. But in one Greek word, as they're having this conversation and she's pushing back, trying to get away from the confrontation, trying to, and and boy, if this isn't, you know, the, 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 the fuller you see the text, the more you see the doctrines of grace come through. If this isn't a picture of irresistible grace, I don't know what is. Because this woman is pushing hard against, listen, let's talk about where we need to worship. And Jesus, no, no, we need to talk about who you need to worship. Let, let, let's, let's move in, in this direction of talking about the, the eschatology of, uh, of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am. And what happens in that moment is she flees from the presence of holiness. 
But I think in that same moment, as she flees to tell everyone in the community, she has been transformed in her life to be a true believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that having happened not by her will, but by the will of God. What Jesus is declaring in this one Greek word, a me, is that He is before all things. It speaks of the aseity of God. Of the reality that God is self-existent before all things. That He is eternal. And that He lacks nothing in and of Himself. The triune God does not need this woman at the well to have glory. He has glory. The glorious thing is that He reveals it to this woman and to you and I today. This is the one, as he says, I am. He holds all things together. He, he's saying, Jesus is saying, you know, here's the thing. There's a continuum on the spectrum of preachers. Some are lengthy and some are short. Jesus could get the truth across in this one declaration. Because what John writes in the first five chapter, uh, first five verses uh, of his gospel uh, in chapter one, turn back to John chapter one. All of what is said in those first five verses is being declared in this greater title, I am. As John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and yet without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This woman had five husbands. She had violated the law of God. And yet we find in this text that none of her darkness could overcome the light of the declaration that He pronounced to her, I am. What we find in these first five verses is that all that exists, again, is the theater of, of, of showing that our God is both Creator and He is Redeemer. Verses 14 and 16, through 16 of chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of revelation and salvation. And for, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace and this woman then hearing this in the declaration i am the full weight of what this meant she flees into town leaving behind everything that she had taken leaving behind this container and you have to understand in this economy leaving something like that is 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 a costly reality and she leaves it to go tell the entire community come and see the christ is here this is exactly what we have throughout the first chapter of John. We, we, we find this continual refrain of we found the Messiah, come and see, and then Christ saying, follow me. I think it's interesting to consider the Messiah in a Samaritan view. Remember again that the Samaritans only held the first five books of the canon as legitimate. They rejected the prophets. And we see that she is expecting the Messiah, just as the Jews were in verse 25. I know that the Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Now, I think what she's trying to do there is, Jesus, You're speaking about my life. I'm just going to appeal to the One who knows all things, thinking that the One that's speaking to her is something other than He. And she's, she's, she's waiting on the Messiah. And what she probably has heard, and we don't know this for sure, but uh, Deuteronomy 18.18 18, as a prophetic sense, which she's already proclaimed, I, I sense you are a prophet. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. It's interesting to think about this woman in light of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, do you remember what, what God pronounces there? He says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall, it shall, it shall accomplish that which I 
purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The woman who had heard Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, was prepared under those verses to hear Jesus make the declaration, I am. Do you see how the Word of God is constantly efficacious and doing what He intends it to do? Now the Word made flesh is speaking, and He's speaking a sobering truth to this woman, that He existed before all things, that He is the one who holds all things together, that He is the one who ultimately is the Redeemer Friends, if you want to know, some of you are making your New Year's resolutions. I'm highly suspicious. But if you want a good resolution, you, you, you maybe have at your heart a, a question of how, how do I impact my neighbor? How do I impact my community for the cause of Christ? Know the Word of God and speak the Word of God. Those are the things that will prepare people to receive the Gospel of God. It's also interesting here, and this is somewhat subjective and could be arguable, but it's interesting to see how uh, in the words of this Samaritan that the view of her people was, was probably in some sense closer to the expectation of what, what Jesus, who Jesus really was than that expectation at this time uh, that had devolved of the Pharisaical view of what the Messiah was going to accomplish. Because the... the we find it all throughout the Gospels. We find it all throughout the New Testament canon. The Jews during this time were consumed with the idea that the Messiah would be a political savior. And friends, that's the same problem that we wrestle with inside the church today as well. There are many voices inside of Christendom. Some of them I don't think are inside of Christendom, but they act as though they are, that want to give political solutions to the problems that Christ comes to conquer. And that is so clear all throughout the New Testament that Jesus is not coming for a political solution in His first coming. Now, ultimately, He'll establish His kingdom when He returns. But this woman understood. She had learned that the the Messiah was in some sense going to conform to the prophetic office. And she speaks in, it's in a parenthetical here, In verse uh, 25, he who is called Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. Now, we kind of, I think, forget what anointed one, uh, what a cultural uh, symbol this was and how important it was. I mean, we're removed even from the Middle Ages and and, and the the connection between uh, the the rulers and, and the Lord. And in this context, that wasn't the case. Anointing was a ceremonial placement of oil on the head of one who is set apart for a particular, a special task. And we find this as a reality of kings in the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find this as a reality as Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So this was done to to anoint, to set aside the king. It's also true for the priests. In Exodus chapter 28, you'll find these words, For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and capes. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So not only was this done for the king, not only was this done for the priest, those who would provide the sacri- or, 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 uh, sacrifices, uh, would, would complete the sacrifices, but it was also true uh, in the scriptural economy of the prophets. Elisha, in 1 Kings chapter 19, it said, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. I was told this last week, and I want you to make a connection here. When Jesus says, I am, that is a direct connection to the reality of what she said. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet. The final one. 
the one who comes to make a prophetic announcement that does not need to be added to. When Jesus makes his pronouncements, he doesn't need another messenger to follow after him. He doesn't need another prophetic voice in that same sense. Now, the apostles are are operating in a different category than the prophets. I was told last week that um, I was a bit bold in naming a certain church in our town. And maybe that's true. It's only because I don't have an entire list of churches that hold to that theology. Because then I would pronounce all of them. And it's not just because I'm theologically stubborn or arrogant. I'm sure that's true in some regard. But it's because I love you that I'm so bold. Because here is the reality. There's... The church that I named last week has a prophet on their staff. That's blasphemy. In light of what Jesus says to this woman at the well, that's blasphemy. Because, beloved, for the Christian, our prophet has already come. And the words that he speaks are not, listen, the prophets of our day, if someone tells you I'm a prophet of God, mark it down. They're trying to get something from you. But the declaration that Jesus makes here, I am, is not a declaration that he's needy. It's a declaration that he holds all things together and he has all things and he is here to redeem his people from their sins. He needs nothing, but he will save all who call upon his name. To To claim to be a prophet in the same sense of the office now, in my view, is to claim that Christ's prophetic office was somehow deficient. That when Jesus proclaimed, I am, that something else needed to come after it. He has spoken, friends, in this one declaration, the entire crux of the Bible. When he says, I am, in that one declaration, we find the pinnacle of God's word. All of the Bible points to this one truth. It lands on this one declaration. Every ounce of the need for a king to rule, a priest to offer sacrifice, or a prophet to speak the oracles of God finds their yes and amen in the person of Christ declaring, I am. Anyone who comes in that prophetic role diminishes his supreme worth. And I believe with everything in me that if Paul were here today, he would be pleading with us for the sake of the glory of Christ. And he would say, let those who claim offices that God has not given them be damned. That's how strongly I feel about that. Oh, that God would cut off the voices from among men of those who distract from these glorious words, I am. Now I want to show you something. Again, part of the reason that we're told, aren't we, in the Bible that that there's coming a day where men will stand and they will pronounce the word of God in such a way as to make merchandise of you, to use you. And, 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 and some of these men who claim an office that I think is other than what God has given them will try to peddle things. That, that what God is doing is if you have any darkness, if you have any uh, disappointment in your life, Cam, if there are hard things that come, Brian, in your life, and God doesn't want that for you. He wants health and wealth and prosperity and all of the good material things. Can I show you the one problem with that theology? Take your Bible and do this with me. Point to whatever page you can hold up that's closest to verse 26 where Jesus declares, I am. And do this with me. Hold up your Bible and do this. Look at that. Look at the thickness in comparison to when His second coming is going to happen. And you know what's happening in all of those pages of Scripture? He's not giving Dallas, he's not giving the prophets throughout the Old Testament, he's not giving them Rolex watches. It ain't in there. 
He's not, he's not buttering them up all up with, with palaces. He's not giving them health. In fact, we find the very opposite of all of those things all throughout the canon. What I want you to see in those 14, anyway in my Bible, 1,480 pages is something that is not to be taken for granted. There is in those pages between the beginning, the, the words in the beginning of Genesis and the words that Jesus speak, I am, there is found there a ton of disappointment, a lot of suffering, and much judgment from the hand of God. But there is also found there an abundance of grace and consequently deliverance for the people of God. We find Adam and Eve there in Genesis clothed in animal skins that promise and point forward to the Messiah. We find Abraham there being promised that from his lineage would come one who would be a blessing to both Israel and to all of the nations. And what did Abraham do? He was constantly looking for the Messiah. And I could go on and on and on. In Christ's day, as he was coming into the world, there is sweet old Simeon and Anna waiting on the consolation of Israel. Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and, all of, and, and, and Philip in John chapter 1. Those who knew the Word of God and knew the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Prophet, the Priest, the King. They knew He was coming. They weren't waiting on a Rolex. They weren't waiting for the diagnosis to change. They were waiting for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prophet of Prophets, and the final priest to come and wipe away their sin. And my friends, when Jesus comes to this woman, He declares in grandeur what they've all been waiting for. I am. Now you tell me that you're willing to endure in our day on the other side of that declaration a better prophetic announcement. It does not exist, my friends. And it will not endure. Out of the darkness comes this Christ and He declares to this nameless, and isn't it wonderful? Humanity's always trying to make a name for themselves. Always trying to add up titles to the business card. And here we find that Jesus comes to make this grand pronouncement to a woman that until we are in glory, we will not know her name. Or her titles. Reach for humility, friends. What I want you to see in the lesson in those 1,480 pages, you may come to Christ and you may have been told if you come to Jesus and try Him out, you won't suffer, you won't be burdened, you won't find darkness, you won't find destruction, you won't find death. You won't find disappointment. I promise you on the Word of God, if you look at earthly things, that's a lie. You will always find in this cursed, sin-cursed earth disappointment and darkness. That, that's what John tells us. That Jesus was the light coming into the darkness. I got an amen from the tiny quarter back there. And so I want us to see what God is giving us in, in these pages as He deals with humanity and He doesn't give them all the things that they want. Friends, aren't you thankful that Benny Hinn doesn't get what he wants in the Old Testament or the New? Because God's story is so much better. Friends, it's not that I, I, I have some need for everyone to agree with me theologically that I pronounce these things. It's because I don't want anyone to make merchandise of you. I don't want you to buy into a lesser gospel. What God has pronounced is more glorious than what any man can come up with. Don't settle for something less than what this woman received there at the well. And what God is doing, He's been doing all throughout all of our lives in our darkness and our disappointment. B.F. Westcott wrote this, It cannot have been for nothing that God was pleased to disclose His counsel fragment by fragment through long intervals of silence and disappointments and disasters in that slow preparation 
for the perfect revelation of himself to men, which was most inadequately apprehended till it was freely given, we discern the pattern of his ways. As it was in the case of the first advent, even so now he is guiding the course of the world to his second advent, to his second coming. We can see enough in the past to find a vantage ground for faith. And when the night is deepest and, it all, and all sight fails, shall we not still endure like the men of old as seeing yet the invisible? Walking by faith. Friends, when the darkness of disappointment, disaster, disease comes into your life, I want you to know on the authority of the Word of God that Christ's pronouncement prophetically has not changed. He still is the great I Am. And that very darkness, that thing that Satan seeks to use to undo your faith and to drag you down is the instrument that God will use throughout all of eternity to be the springboard that you will declare His glory forever. Isn't that wonderful? It is by the title of Christ, the Anointed One, that we are taught to wait that we are taught to watch for His coming. That we are taught to hope only in Him. This declaration of Christ as the I Am, the One who always has been, who is, and who is yet to come, is a declaration that we can trust Him in all of our dark times and in all of the disappointments of our lives. When He came the first time, do you see what he's doing? Some people could think, man, Jesus is kind of intense. He is intense. Because what had happened, the blind religious leaders, listen, the Pharisees aren't that much different than the, the, the Benny Hens of our day. Because they're all trying to build the kingdom on material things. They're trying to make it a political issue. They're, they're trying to make it a here and now kingdom issue and Jesus comes and he dashes all of their false hopes their selfish false prophetic announcements and all of their self-absorbed earthly ambitions he drives all of that away and friends what I think I would also encourage you in your disappointments to consider is that if, if, if you are in Christ and you come against a disappointment time and time and time again, He is doing one of two things in that disappointment. He's either going to prove Himself more glorious in light of that disappointment that you're, you're living in the face of, or He's going to drive that disappointment away, showing you that it is a disappointment of self-centered sinfulness. But God has never failed you in your disappointments. Not one time. Because you see, Jesus is, he has titles, but those titles aren't the terminal end to Jesus. Those titles merely point us to who he is and all that he's accomplished. The problem, Dallas, with most of us as men, when we accumulate titles, we're more concerned about the titles than we are living out the reality of those titles. In fact, our dear General George Washington wrote this to his troops as he gave conscriptions for them to become officers. He said, Remember that it is the actions and not the commission that make the officer, and that there is more expected from him than the title. So when Jesus makes the declaration I am. His title does not just come as the titles of men do with false promises of those who are failed leaders. But his title, I am, is telling you something. That all he has said will come to pass, will come to pass. That he is both the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he will accomplish all that he intends. Friends, when he says the words, I am, if you think in your mind, I've got it, do me a favor and read your Bible through this entire year because you don't have it. 
Turn in your Bible to Psalm 39. I want you to see the weight, I think, in just one psalm of what our Lord is pronouncing to us. Jesus has said, I am. I am the self-existent one. I am before all things. I am the one who was and is and is to come. Here the psalmist says it this way. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. All of the darkness and the disappointment, he's saying in verse 3. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Friends, I just pray that in the year to come, as you are reading your Bible, and if, again, you want a good New Year's resolution, make a resolution that you will depend upon the Spirit of God to teach you to have more of a hunger for God so that you will absorb more of His Word. And as you do, I pray that throughout the years that these words would echo into your mind time and time again. And then at the back of your mind, you would have envisioned this humble woman that meets with Christ as He declares to her and to you and I, I am. For the glory of God, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today knowing that we haven't even scratched the surface of your glory and yet you have pronounced both to, through all of your prophets, Moses, the patriarchs, through the apostles, the glory of Christ. And here we find from the very mouth of Christ a declaration that he is God and that there is none like him. So Christ, would you teach us in our days to value this declaration? Would you teach us to live in light of it knowing that the things we're disappointed with here will somehow be turned to glory as we stand before You. Father, would You help us to trust more in the eternal reality that You are and You are yet to come, that You hold all things together for Your own glory. Might we rejoice now and give all glory and praise to Your name. In Christ's name we pray.